This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. I'm going to start off by talking a lot about Bo Horvat here. It is the uh, return of Bo Horvat to Vancouver. Some will boo, some will cheer, some will probably do a combination of both. I would hope if you're going to the game tonight, Vancouver Canucks fan, you feel like hammering Horvat a little bit, go for it. But then by the end of the video tribute, at least pay some respect to a guy that gave it all for the Vancouver Canucks in a very, very challenging time. Welcome to the program here. Uh, I want to read you something in a couple of seconds uh, from Ian McIntyre's latest available at sportsnet.ca. But uh, before we get there, Sean Reynolds stops by at the bottom of the hour. Don't look now, but the Winnipeg Jets are really good. Um, don't look now, but Kyle Connor is tied with Austin Matthews for the leading goals in the NHL. And don't look now, Cole Perfetti continues to perform for the Winnipeg Jets and barely gets any ice time from the coaching staff. 13 minutes last night, two points. That story continues for whatever reason. We're all scratching our heads about that one. We should probably talk about Nick Ehlers as well. Uh, Going into last night's game, telling members of his family, yeah, my fighting career is probably done. The injuries have caught up to me. Uh, And then five hours later, he got in a fight. (laughs) <laughs> Two goals last night for Ehlers uh, as well. We'll talk about the Winnipeg Jets. It is Wednesday. That means MVSW Redux. So Greg Wyshynski from ESPN stops by. Rich Peverly, uh, who was supposed to be on the program yesterday, but we had all kinds of conflicts with guest bookings and sorted it all out. Rich Peverly is going to stop by in hour two. Uh, former NHL player, now the Dallas Stars director of player personnel. And as I always go out of my way to mention about Rich Peverly, one day will be a general manager in the NHL. Uh, it is Wednesday. That means it is a writing day for Elliot Friedman. So in the bestie spot is Matt Marchese today. Our, uh, what are we calling you? Supervising producer, senior producer. What's the title that you hold these days, Matty? Jack of all trades, master of none. How about that one? That is true. I'm working that is, on it. That is very true as well. I mean... You're a you're a versatile guy for sports radio though. Like the thing about me is like I've got the horse blinders on for hockey. Like that's it. Like I'm not broadcasting. I'm narrow casting. You gotta go all over the place. Yeah, my wife. You will loves have a it. brighter future than I ever had. No, I'm I'm sure. Well, see the the thing about it is too. Like I just sort of focus on hockey. That's my main thing. Um, but what I find is when I talk to colleagues or friends uh, like you. Um, I mean, you draw, Elliot's the same way, drawing references and having conversations about, you know, football and basketball. And, you know, I can hang with baseball again, too. Um, I have a very special term for how you people speak. You want to know what it is? What's that? Sportuguese. <laughs> That's what I call it. When I listen to you on the radio, I'm like, oh, Maddie's talking Sportuguese today. Oh, okay, very good. Got a little football here, that's a little hockey good. there. Going to draw in some baseball, maybe some UFC. Maddie's talking Sportuguese. Yeah, that's, that's um, me. A couple of things we're gonna get. Uh, we're gonna get to a lot of this with Greg Wyshynski and you know the the general the, the brief general managers meeting, tabling some things for later on in March, and the big discussion. And we had some of it yesterday with Elliot. What to do? with the three-on-three and the hand-wringing about neutral zone regroups. Um, First of all, leave it to hockey to ruin something that was really good when it started, namely three-on-three, and leave it to hockey to wring their hands about it a couple of years later. Um, And some of the the ideas are, I guess, interesting for how to correct the three-on-three. Did any of them grab you? I like, heard yesterday. I like the idea of a shot clock in overtime. I do like that. Ugh. No, I, I like it because Ugh. it... Then for, you're just going to have... You, no, you, 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 
you know what you're going to have, Matt? You're going to have defensemen laying back and just allowing, like, bad angle shot after bad angle shot, low percentage shots. That's all that that's going to be. You want that to be overtime? Well, I, I don't know. I, I feel like it – I'm not certain that it would be, though. I, I feel like there's a little bit more pride among these players. Like, I know I know the goal is to win, and I get that. Whoa, 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 whoa. What's that word? Yeah, pride. Um, or win, what whichever word? one you want. Uh, here's here's one. Pass me a dictionary. I'm unfamiliar <laughs> with that term. It, the the pro. I wonder about, and the problem is, is like this is where you and I can get really wacky with things, and people are like, "Oh my god, these guys are nuts." Um, yeah, would I it be know. better or worse to expand the offensive zone in overtime, making the the red line the new blue line? Is that better or worse? So the ball hockey rule. Yeah. Yeah. You're a ball hockey guy. You yes. want the ball hockey rule. So it's once not, you get the blue line, the blue line backs up to the red line. Yeah, and I, I'm not sure if zone. that, and I'm sure not sure if that makes it better or worse. It might actually make it better because it gives these guys more space to be creative, and they can't go back into their own zone because then it's offside, and then everybody's got to clear up again. I just, I, I don't know. I don't know if there's what, a solution other does, than just try harder to make the game more entertaining. <laughs> What it uh, what what that does is it gives players more room to retreat legally. Yeah. I mean, you, you can regroup in the neutral zone, and that's legal too. But still, you're still retreating. You're getting away from, you know, the danger zones in front of the net for a shot. Like that's all you're doing if yeah. you're just doing the ball hockey rule. I mean, what if you're gonna do it that way? Why not just get rid of the lines altogether? Hey, you can't do a neutral zone regroup if there's no neutral zone. Eddie yeah. Murphy. Um, you know, like. To me, like coaches have wrecked it. <laughs> I'll just yes, be blunt. Hundred percent. Coaches have wrecked it. We 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 thought eventually coaches were going to ruin it. One of the part of the glory about the the three on three to begin with uh, was the fact that it was or it seemed to be uncoachable. Like coaches didn't know what to do with it. It was just we're going to send out our best guys and see what happens. Um, and we knew somewhere down the road coaches would figure it out and they would wreck it because it's coaches' jobs to um, wreck hockey. Oh, no, sorry. It's coaches' jobs to win and in the process make it as boring and safe and predictable as possible. Whereas this was just supposed to be about punk rock. This was just supposed to be loud and dumb and fun. Mm-hmm. Five minutes of it. Go, enjoy it. And now it's been now it's been curtailed. I've been saying for the past couple of days, tongue in cheek, if you're going to do anything with it, just get the coaches off the bench. Just for the the visual of the overtime starts and you watch the coaches go down the hallway uh, into the into the, into the dressing room and the they walk have to of sit shame. There. Maybe you put a camera on them. Maybe you put a camera on them. Like you did this. It's your fault that the overtime has turned into a collection of neutral zone regroups. You did this. So now you have to sit in the dressing room and think about what you've done. It's their own version of the penalty box. I have I an idea. I have an idea. Well that that is never going to happen. Yeah, okay, shoot. How about we change the point system to add more incentive to win oh in overtime? God. But but that like if you're only getting one point for a shootout win, aren't is aren't you more incentivized to win in overtime? Like that's if you're only getting one point for a shootout win. Aren't you incentivized to win in overtime yeah. then? Like so that's so I th- I wonder if that like the problem is is changing the point system for one five-minute portion of the the, game I struggle with. Here's the problem. Here's the problem with it. When you have three-on-three, if you take... Because we saw this in the first few seasons. Remember that Detroit-Ottawa overtime that we all went banana sandwich over? 
because it was so it was like, it was yeah. like the best overtime. Mm-hmm. It was just five minutes of sprints and crossbars and two on ones back and forth. And oh, they're caught on a line change, and here's a two on oh, and oh, what a save! And he kicked it out to center, and a guy coming off the bench has got it. And there's a breakaway the other way now. It was the best overtime we've ever seen. Uh, it was just five minutes of chaos and sprints and tongues hanging out on the bench and get back out there. It was it was glorious. It was fantastic. One of the problems now is what we saw in the first couple of seasons of the overtime was players shooting from everywhere, like shooting as if it's a five-on-five game and you have defense behind you or you have guys covering and you're not just going to be exchanging odd man rushes. But now if you don't have, quote-unquote, the perfect shot, you don't take it anymore. Like, it's all come down to percentages. Don't shoot from there in the three-on-three because the percentages are low, you're going to make it, but really high, you're going to surrender an odd man rush. So you can blame coaches, you can blame analytics, you can blame just people thinking about the game correctly because it's right. Like, you shouldn't shoot from those areas. But it's fun. Yeah. It's for a fun five minutes of hockey. Sure. But that's just it. Like, I don't know that, I don't know that we're putting the toothpaste back in the bottle here yeah, I, on th- this one. Like, we can get rid of the lines if you want. You can totally get rid of the lines and just go, like, it's 200 by 85. There's no such thing as icing. There's no such thing as offside. Just go. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Is that going to do it? Or do you just say there's a lot of room out there for guys to stretch out? So maybe, and I haven't heard this proposed anywhere, Maybe you get rid of all the lines, but introduce an extra player per team. Mm. So you still have more options to pass and more options to create. Yeah. You don't have you don't have three boxes you have to stay in. There's no offensive zone, neutral zone, defensive zone. And in order to compensate for that, you put a, you make it a four on four instead of a three on three, and you get rid of all the lines. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. Yeah, I I've I've always been a big proponent of not getting a loser point because I think that's ridiculous. I think that's a a problem. Like you should not get a point for losing. So I think if you do the tiered point system, I think it goes two ways. I think it makes, you know, regular time exciting because if a team needs three points instead of two, um, and then on the flip side, if a team needs two points instead of one, so there's more incentive to win it in overtime. There's no loser points. You're not not here. What I'm saying here, here's no, you're not here because you're still going to get players still playing percentages. The beauty of overtime was a bunch of really highly skilled hockey players making poor decisions. Yeah, no, I get that. That was part of the beauty of it. Like, like go, go back and look at some of those those first couple of seasons of three-on-three. Three. Yeah, no, I understand you think that. Yourself, wow, what a, what an awful decision. But here we go. It's a two-on-one the other way. Wow, why is he shooting? Does he not know that's going to cream off the boards and it's going to go, and it's a two-on-one? So players like, got smarter. That was smarter. part of the beauty of it. <laughs> coaches did i think players thought it was fun <laughs> they probably do. did come I, on you didn't like you didn't think all these guys playing in this in, in in the early days of the three-on-three were just having fun like flat out having fun like this is awesome this is pond hockey i don't feel like i have bungee cords attached to, from the bench to my hockey pants and oh don't go too deep in the offensive zone gotta pull back gotta gotta stay high the f1's going in and everyone's pulling back there's none of that Let's players do- just like, look like they were having a great time and they were making a ton of mistakes. There's there's few things better in hockey than highly skilled players consistently making mistakes. You know why? Because other teams capitalize on yeah. them and lead to high danger chances the other way. And then they'll make a dumb mistake and it goes back and forth. So like, we- I remember someone in, the, in, in, in junior hockey once saying to me, this was a uh, former NHL coach who went on to coach in junior. And uh, we were talking about the difference between junior hockey and the NHL. And he said, in a lot of ways, junior hockey is a lot more exciting than the NHL. And I said, why do you say that? And he said, in the NHL, 
during a game, you're going to get five, maybe six, maybe six big mistakes that lead to something fun and spectacular. In junior hockey, you get about 30. Yeah. And that's why the junior hockey, like the actual product is, uh, can be a lot more entertaining than the NHL one can. Now, like you're seeing the best players in the world when you're when you're watching the NHL, but still, like highly skilled players making mistakes is a great thing for entertainment. It's awesome, and that's what we saw in the three on three in the first couple of seasons. So, do we need to go to the minor hockey or youth hockey uh, three on three for four minutes, then two on two for four minutes, and then one on one for four oh, minutes until somebody scores, <laughs> and then you play one on one for eternity? Tournament, yeah. Uh, at the Silver Stick Tournament years ago, uh, Sean Day, there's a name for you. Mm-hmm. Sean Day's team went down to a one-on-one, and they kept Sean Day out there. It's a legendary, it's a legendary story from the, from the Silver Stick. This is back in the day where we thought that Sean Day was going to be the next Hall of Fame defenseman, and, man, did he ever have the skills to, to do it. Um, and I still want that guy to get back in. Anyway, um, but I've, I've seen that before, and it is glorious and goofy. Um, all at the same time. Uh, we got a couple of other things to go over here. Sure. Let me uh, shift away from the three-on-three. We'll talk to Wyshynski about this coming up later on. I want to read something to you here. Mm-hmm. So this is Ian McIntyre, uh, published last night, about the return of Bo Horvat to Vancouver. This is at sportsnet.ca. Here's the opening two paragraphs. <clears throat> the media's theme ahead of Bo Horvat's return to Vancouver on Wednesday to play the Canucks. Should the former captain be cheered or jeered at Rogers Arena? Are you kidding? For what he did for the Canucks, all the heat he took for teammates and the organization, Bo Horvat deserves the Order of Canada. Now, notables who have won the Order of Canada recently, last year Eugene Levy, before that Sidney Crosby. So that's good company to keep. <laughs> a big Eugene Levy guy, a big Sidney Crosby guy. Nice hat trick for Sidney Crosby last night. More on that later. Uh, what do you make of the return of Bo Horvat tonight? Like, I look at Bo Horvat and I say he gave everything that he could to Vancouver. He was the captain in a very dark time, in a, how shall we say, Matty, transitional time mm-hmm. for the Vancouver Canucks. Um, last year's experience wasn't great for him. Uh, the fact that they, they prioritized the signing of J.T. Miller before their captain wasn't exactly great for Bohorvat. I understand why he said what he did last year about it's better than Vancouver because last season with Vancouver, it was a miserable, miserable experience in that now famous interview with Shannon Hogan. How do you think they handled Bohorvat tonight? Well, first of all, they should be super thrilled because he left all his goals in Vancouver, or at least a large portion of them in Vancouver. He scored all of them there because hmm. um, it hasn't been, you know, the easiest of times with the Islanders. Having said that, um, I don't. I know they're going to boo him. I get that, but you should cheer him as well because of all those things that you mentioned. That was last year in Vancouver was more that one team had to deal with than a lot of teams deal with in five years. It was just one thing after another, whether it was the president making a comment or it was a player or it was the Tanner Pearson situation or, you know, the team wasn't playing well. And then they fought like there was a lot to unpack last year. And Bo Horvat was around for a lot of it. Um, I find it really interesting when, because it's not like Bo Horvat's like he wanted to stay in Vancouver. He wanted to sign an extension. 
and they chose JT Miller yeah. over him. And that's, I mean, look, it's it looks like it's fine. JT Miller's been great under Rick Tockett. But I think that's where I lean towards, like, you got to cheer this guy rather than boo him. And I know the Shannon Hogan interview ruffled a lot of feathers. I enjoyed it thoroughly. But yeah. I think you got to cheer Bo Horvat because he wanted to be there. The organization made the decision for him not to be there. And that's where I think he should be applauded for being a professional throughout that process. Yeah, I think if you're going to boo him, that's fine. I don't like telling people what to do, but here I go. If you're going to boo him, like, at least for part of the part of the tribute, give him some polite applause because he really did a lot for the Vancouver Canucks. Again, yeah. at a very, very, like, in a, in a sort of transition phase between what was and what is now. And what is now is really good. Like, we've talked about this plenty this year about, you know, the, the suddenly red-hot Vancouver Canucks and at every single position they're dominating, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Vancouver should feel good about itself. But don't forget the players that are there during the dark times <laughs> and held themselves to a certain standard like Bo Horvat did. Anyway, it'll be an interesting one tonight. Um, the Vancouver, like, Vancouver's just so good. Uh, right now, and the Islanders are just so bad, and the howls for Lane Lambert are out there. Um, this one should be an interesting one. Uh, Vancouver Canucks facing off against uh, the New York Islanders. The return of Bo Horvat, that is the marquee game uh, on the board tonight. Um, one other thing here I, I want to get into with you, the Anaheim Ducks. Yeah. Folks, if you're not staying up to watch your Anaheim Ducks, shame on you. Because although I don't think it is pushes up glasses, sustainable. Uh, it's a lot of fun, right? Anaheim Ducks, six of their 15 uh, come from Hines. 3-2 uh, is the final. Nashville jumps out to a 2-0 lead. Don't, and then all of a sudden, Radko Gudis goes into the phone booth uh, as Clark Canton comes out as Superman. Um, whether it's a fight, whether it's a goal, whether it's an assist, whether it's a great interview afterwards, uh, Radko Gudis has become a cult hero in Anaheim in short order. Um, and we had this game had a little bit of everything. Like John Gibson was outstanding in nets. We had a couple of fights, including Ross Johnston, uh, going at it yesterday with uh, with Big Mike McCarron. Um, there were fights, there were hits, there were goals. There was great goaltending performance, and at the end of all of it, another great comeback, another great comeback by the Anaheim Ducks. I don't think, and Maddie, I don't think you think that this is any way to win successfully over the course of a long period of time. Uh, I always look at teams that say, you know, if you win like 21 goal games or 31 goal games or throw out an outrageous number, their narrative that goofballs like me like to put to that is, oh, they know how to win playoff style games. Oh, one goal game. That's a playoff score. They know how to win those. No, one goal games are jump ball. One goal games are coin flips. Give me the team that scotches you, like that wins every game by an average of like three goals. That is more impressive than winning the playoff-style one-goal game. Because if your identity is we dine out by winning close games, that can come back to bite you. If you depend on your third period, and right now, and I'm doing great, but if you depend on your third period too much, Maddie, over the course of time, that will bite you. But it's fun watching them, right? It's fun watching Anaheim because you can look at this Ducks team and say, you're starting to see the future. And it's Mason McTavish with a C on his jersey. And it's Leo Carlson as a future superstar. And it's Pavel Minchikov as a future superstar. And it's Lucas Dostal as a future superstar. And that, like at every single position, 
the Anaheim Ducks have potential superstars coming. And maybe the biggest one, he's not even there yet, Nolan Zellweger. This is a really fun team to watch now, and it's going to be a really hard team to play against in the future. I didn't even mention Trevor Zegers. Um, that's how good they are. You can rattle off a lot of other names at a lot of other positions and not even mention Zegers, and it looks like a... It just looks like a like a like a freight train coming. So you're getting a little glimpse of that into the future. That's my two cents. What do you think of the Ducks? First of all, it took a lot of pain to get here. Like that's the other thing. So kudos to the fans that that stuck around for this one because they they are reaping the benefits of sticking around as a fan. But you know, when I look at this Ducks team, you talk about you want a team that just scotches everybody, and I don't know about that. I've thought a lot about that because. Are you are you're winning games, but are they meaningful? Like that's the, like when you're you don't have to grind out wins sometimes when you're that good. Like look at what happened to the Boston Bruins last year. They were an absolute juggernaut, and the Florida Panthers had to scratch and claw, no pun intended, to get into the playoffs, and it did not work out for the Boston Bruins in that season. And I look at Anaheim. Pause. Yes. Pause for one second. Sure. They got a hot goalie. Sure, it happens. And Brad Marchand missed that. Missed and Brad Marchand missed that shot. But That's should it. they have even been in that scenario? Like at that point in the game? Like I, I, I get. I understand you run into a hot goalie and that that changes things. I get that. Here's the other thing, though. There is something to be said about being young and inexperienced, isn't there? Because they don't they don't have any fear of the moment. They just kind of go out and be like, okay, we're just gonna do our thing. Like, they don't have enough experience to be afraid. And that's where I look at this and say, do I think that it's sustainable to be winning, you know, comeback one-goal games all the time? No, but I don't think it matters to them because they just look at it and go, well, it's just another game. Nobody expected anything of us. We're just a young group. And Mm -hmm. they're playing at a high level right now, and they're young. They've got energy. they're They're all full of exuberance, and they have talent. And so... I don't think you can go and win, you know, 30 games uh, by a comeback nature. But I think that there's some value in just not knowing any better, Jeff. And that, and I think that plays a part with this Anaheim team. It's like, oh, we're down? Oh, okay. It's fine. We'll be okay. And I think that's a that's a big part of the Ducks and, and how they're going. And I give credit to Greg Cronin because it, as a coach, that would probably drive him nuts that they constantly do this, but it's, but it's working right now. And eventually you're going to get to a point where you gain a little bit of experience as the season goes on. And as the years go on where you are winning those games Mm -hmm. and not having to come back in them because you've, you've learned and you've gained that experience. But for right now, I think it's great. All right. Shift gears to the Buffalo Sabres. They lose Tage Thompson. That's a tough one. Sounds sounds like Alex Tuck is ready to come back, Zach Benson. So I don't think anyone's getting called up from Rochester. So Tage Thompson is out, and that's a really, really bad scene for the Buffalo Sabres. The other bad scene is Devin Levi. Who, who would have thunk it? After seven games, the save percentage is 881. I know there are a lot of people who really believe in Devin Levi and that Buffalo Sabres organization. I mean, I think there was their full intention that he was going to jump right from college to be a star in the NHL, even though if you look at the history of hockey and at that position specifically, you don't go from college hockey to the NHL. You spend some time in the American Hockey League at that position specifically. Mm-hmm. 
That's not just a college thing. That's junior hockey too. Um, I always wondered what made people think that Levi could do that where other people have never had, never been able to. Like, is he that special? Like, was there anything about Levi's game that screamed, this guy can buck the trend of history and go right from college to the NHL? No. Doesn't mean he's a bad goalie. I just don't think that he's ready for this right now. And his numbers betray that. Like, he needs some time in Rochester. Like, can we just end the end the talk right now that Devin Levi is going to be the savior for this team? And then he went out and got stomped yesterday by the Boston Bruins. I know the Boston, the Buffalo Sabres didn't put up much of a fight uh, in the game, but it wasn't as if Devin Levi gave them a chance. And it's been a tough go so far for Levi. And there's no shame in that. NHL's a really hard league to play yeah, in. Yeah, <laughs> and these shooters are all great. Like, everybody can shoot. Everybody can play here. It's real hard to be a young goaltender in the NHL. That's why the American Hockey League is so important for these guys. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so important. So can we, can we just say, like, okay, he needs – it's okay whether you're Kevin Adams or goalie coach Mike Bales or Sam Ventura or whomever – it's okay to say we thought this might work, but the reality is it's not. Yeah. Like Devin Levi needs to go to Rochester, doesn't he? Yeah, two two because th- I do want to get to the Thompson thing because I have a thought on that. But the, the Levi thing is this. He comes up and he does n- he has no NHL tape on him. So he can succeed in a short window as a goaltender. Guess what? They have whatever it is, seven, eight games of tape on him now. And to pick up tendencies for a goalie, that's all you need because they are, generally speaking, the same all the time. So now teams have a book on him, and they're taking advantage of that, which means that you now have, as, a, as the Buffalo Sabres yourself, you have the NHL tape on Devin Levi. So now you have a list of things that he needs to work on, and he's not working on them at the NHL level. He's got to go to the AHL and work on them. So I think that's a big part of it, and I agree like forget the NHL is hard. Being a goalie in the NHL is hard and being a young goalie in the NHL is almost impossible. Okay. Especially the way the guys yeah. shoot. And how, when was the last time that we've seen a goalie come in at 20, 21 years old and really light the world on fire? It doesn't happen all that often. Historically in the NHL, forget just in the last 20 years over yeah, the course of history. So that so I, I agree yep. with that. Now, the Tage Thompson thing. This is going to start opening up the question again about having your stars kill penalties. Because when you're out killing penalties, you are more likely to be blocking a shot than you would in the regular, especially a point shot anyway, from the regular field of play. And that's how Tage Thompson gets hurt yesterday. And it, was he trying to block it with his wrist? No, he wasn't. But he's in a bad spot and you've lost your star now, and I think it's going to open up the question again of do we want our stars getting out there on the penalty kill and having to block shots? Because when you're a penalty killer, that is part of the job. Yeah. Uh, I I think long gone now are the days where you just want the guys that are going to be out there blocking shots. Like when it comes to the penalty kill, yeah, uh, I, think I, I agree. Turn the page on that, and you want and, and and you want players that can think the game and can anticipate uh, the game and can anticipate the flow and where the puck is going. Uh, like long gone are the days where it's just like, oh, uh, Matt Hendricks, get out there and jump in front of shots, and uh, Lori Korpakowski, get out there and dive in front of shots. Like that's going to be your job. Dan Girardi, get out there and dive in front of everything. 
I think you know the 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 wisdom now is more along the lines of not uh, can you stop shots, but can you think the penalty kill? And penalty kills are more aggressive now than ever before. Specifically now that teams generally only have one point man on the on the on the point, and that's an area where you can exploit. Now, mind you, a lot of it sometimes with a blocked shot. I get that. But I don't know that I'm prepared to, to throw everything out here and say because Tage Thompson got hurt on a blocked shot that you just go back to the old days of, you know, throwing uh, slugs out there that can just eat pucks. You know, uh, the, the the days of, you know, listen, we loved Ian LaPerriere sticking his face in front of that Paul Martin slap shot <laughs> years ago in that New Jersey. True. Uh, in that New Jersey Philadelphia series, right? Like, oh wow, what a warrior, what a beast! Like, look at that, Ian Laperriere will do anything. On, oh, what a horrible scene! But now we want guys that can. Now we want guys that can think. Now we want guys that can play, killing penalties, right? Don't you? I but he, here's my thing though, Jeff is the 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 years of having those guys that can't play is we're gone from that, like. There's a reason why teams are built the way that they are. I don't think you have those kind of quote unquote slugs as many as many of them on your roster as before. It's just, would you rather lose your third line guy who has a little bit of skill and is smart, or would you rather lose Tage Thompson for three months? That's how I'm kind of evaluating it. it. All right, let's uh, let's hit pause on that one. Players are, are in Sweden right now. Four teams: Minnesota Wild, Detroit Red Wings, Ottawa Senators, Toronto Maple Leafs. Um, the Global Series gets underway again tomorrow. We'll get afternoon games at two o'clock. We'll get an eleven a.m. game on Saturday. Maddie will get an eight a.m. Eastern game on Sunday. I love it. Yep. I love games being played at different times all throughout the day. Count me in. I'm here for it all day. Did I ever tell you my favorite? Was, I was on with uh, with Bunkus this morning. We are talking about Swedish hockey and who's the face of Swedish hockey, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Did I ever tell you my favorite Ulf Sterner story? No. I have not heard this one. Ulf Sterner. Or Ulf Sterner, like one of the great gags of all time. So... Ulf Sterner ended up playing four games in the NHL with the New York Rangers. Like this mm-hmm. is before Salman came over and Inga Hammerstrom, et cetera. Um, he went to Boston Bruins training camp and a lot of the guys would like play pl- pranks on one another. So Sterner thought that one of the best ways to ingratiate himself with his Boston Bruins teammates was to play a prank on the guys. Ha ha ha. <laughs> okay. He's just one of us. Ah, Ophi, what a guy. What he did? What's that? This is legend. So this was the era where everybody had false teeth. And, and, and in your stall, you had a cup of water. And before you went out to skate, you put your false teeth in it. <laughs> Sterner <laughs> switched all the false teeth oh, before yeah. going out to skate. <laughs> it's a legendary great oh, story. Oh, God. Not only is that funny, but it's and super the- gross, too. The only way to see whose teeth are whose is to try on as many teeth as possible. <laughs> and I bet it's the vast majority of the guys that had false teeth, too. Not like three or four. No, no, no. Like all of them. Yeah, that's... You, uh, oh, you can wow. imagine how well how well that went over. Uh, players on the Boston Bruins did not look kindly. I bet they look on back on Ulf it now Sterner's and laugh, tactical though. joke. Those that are still with us, yes. Yeah. 
absolutely. Yeah. Um, but oh, That's at the great. time, like you finish practice, you just want to like, uh, you know, get get back home, and now you got to sort out whose teeth are where. Thanks, Ulf. Yeah. Uh, on that, we'll hit a break. Uh, Going to get on the Winnipeg Jets page here. Uh, we should talk about a number of players here. We should talk about the team. We'll start with Kyle Connor, who's been a force for the Winnipeg Jets all season. And don't look now. He's having a tremendous month. He's tied with Austin Matthews for the goal-scoring lead in the NHL with 13. Um, we can talk to Sean Reynolds here from Sportsnet.ca. Recap of Winnipeg Jets' big win over the New Jersey Devils. And don't look now. Second place in the division. Sean Reynolds coming up in moments. Greg Wyshynski and Rich Peverly in hour two. Big show. Glad to have you aboard. Back in moments across the Sportsnet Radio Network, Sportsnet 360, and your favorite podcast platform. There we go. Back in a moment. Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL. The J.D. Bunkins Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Just uh, at the break there, having a look at um, Sam Cosentino's latest. The Prospect Rankings November edition, Sammy just uh, publishing this morning. Who do you think he's got number one? Yeah, Macklin Celebrini. Come on, you know that. Uh, Cole Eisman in it too. Also of note, a lot of Western Hockey League presence. In, uh, in this one, whether it's uh, Berkeley Catton from Spokane, whether it's uh, Ryder Ritchie from Prince Albert, whether it's uh, Caden Lindstrom from Medicine Hat. And also, if we go down to number 25, just to make you feel old, it's what I do here. I feel old every day. It's my job to make you feel old as well. Tija Ginla, Kelowna Rockets, Western Hockey League. Yes, that is the son of Jerome Aginla. Pause for a moment, feel old, and let's continue the show. The Winnipeg Jets are hot, 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 beating the New Jersey Devils last night. And a couple of moments after telling his family he's done fighting, Nick Ehlers fought. Uh, Nick Ehlers also scored, uh, as did Kyle Connor. Kyle Connor now tied with Austin Matthews for the NHL leading goals with 13. Sean Reynolds there always to document all of it, who joins us now from sportsnet.ca. Sean, how are you today, pal? Doing great, Jeff. Uh, maybe not feeling quite as old as you're suggesting we should feel, but yeah, the again, the sun thing. That's, uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a head shaker, head scratcher. <laughs> the, 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 the one for me where, because where like every year there's like one thing, Sean, that makes you feel old, like, oh, wow, that happened. Oh, geez, how long have I been around covering this game? Uh, a couple of weeks ago when Paul Stastny retired, um, and like we sort of expected that it would come, and there it was, and I thought to myself, you know, I watched dad's entire <laughs> career. I covered yeah. his son's entire career. Like I've watched like two generations of Stastny's right in front of my eyes going back to Canada Cup 76. Uh, holy yeah. smokes, where's my walker? And uh, when can I, you know, <laughs> am I going to start eating dinner at 4.30 now too? Well, I'll say it's like when you walk around, you get caught calling Sidney Crosby Sid the kid, right? He's, he's no longer the kid, no <laughs> doubt. And I, I covered the Dards' first game, and it's that thing where he he was, what, a couple months old when Sid the kid had his first game, his favorite player. So yeah. the guys who we thought were young that we were covering are now the old guys. So, yeah, that makes us the really, yeah. really, really old guys. <laughs> 
Yeah, I know. It's uh, listen. Uh, it's the author, the great authority, and the great equalizer is time. We know that. Uh, well, listen. A lot of us didn't give much time to the Winnipeg Jets at the beginning of the season and thought that they had quite, you know, flatly run out of time uh, on this era of the Winnipeg Jets. And listen, we thought that. Um, uh, we thought that, uh, again, this was going to be the summer where Kevin Cheveldayoff sold off. Didn't do any of those things. Uh, and don't look now, but the Winnipeg Jets were a really good hockey team. And yeah. case in point last night uh, against the New Jersey Devils. Uh, first of all, be- before I get into uh, a couple of other things here, just your thoughts on Nick Ehlers. Uh, fights Brendan Smith after the hit on Nemestikov. And this is after, like, we- we've seen Nick Ehlers fight before, and... You know, I think we all have the flashbacks of that fight against Ryan Getzlaff, but we've seen him do it before. But this is a couple hours, you know, after telling his family that he's done fighting. Not that he does a lot of it, and then right away, I didn't like that hit. I'm going to go in and fight. Uh, just have a, a thought or two on Nick Ehlers. Um, it, it doesn't surprise me one bit. I think you know, it's it's one of these things where uh, Sam Gagne was playing with the Jets last year, and he got into a fight in one of the games that we did in New York, and his sister, who's an actress in New York, just happened to be there. I bumped into them in the elevator afterwards, and I asked her about, you know, him fighting, and does she like seeing that? She was just kind of mortified by it. I think there's, like, a rule of thumb that the (laughs) one time that guys you don't expect to get into a fight are going to do it is when their moms or sisters are in the crowd because they're the last ones who want to see it. So maybe it's a little bit of that kind of like sons antagonistic mindset. I know mom's absolutely going to hate this. So, uh, hey, listen, Vladimir <laughs> Esnikov is the kind of guy that that his teammates love him. This was a great pickup. You're talking about what the Jets did to make them competitive this year, and yeah. a lot of people didn't expect it. Vladimir Esnikov is the guy they got for a fourth-round pick. His teammates adore him. That second line wasn't working. It was literally to move for Freddie at the beginning of the season to the second line center. But they had this release valve in the Mesnikov they knew last year came up and played second line center. He's done it again this year. And his teammates will go to the wall for him. And Nick Ehlers doing that is A, a sign that he's a really good teammate, but B, a sign that he just adores the Mesnikov. And he, that's not going to slide on this Jets team. So uh, good on both those players. Um, do you have a thought on on Cole Perfetti? Like I, again, here's I know I I sound yeah. like I'm just banging this drum over and over again, but I'm just like scratching my head uh, when I look at the ice time and I look at the the production. Like there it is again, uh, one plus one, two points, ice time just over 13 minutes. Like what am I? I don't know. Like I, I, are you on the same page as I am? Like what am I? What am I missing here? Like what does this guy need to do to get more? Like, no matter what ice time you give him, he performs. Like what am I? What am I missing about Perfetti? Okay, so I just touched on it. He was moved to the second-line center to start this season, and they drafted him as the center, so they wanted to see if it was time. There's that hole left behind by Pierre-Luc Dubois. Um, I thought it was too early. Like, if you go back and you take a look at that draft class, the Winnipeg Jets were asking for more from Cole Perfetti than anyone in that draft class other than Tim Stutzley. It was a big ask, um, and you're talking about going from Pierre-Luc Dubois, who's a bull, you know what I mean, to, to a guy who thinks his way through the game. I don't think he gets pushed around, but he definitely thinks his way through the game. And it can be tough out in the West when you're running into teams like L.A. or Vegas and trying to take on their second-line centers or first-line assignments, whatever it is. So I think it was a lot yeah. to ask from him. He stumbled out of the gates because of that. They moved him over the wing, to the wing, which I think was the right thing to do. Not that I don't think he'll eventually make his way back to center. I just don't think now is the time. Nemesnikov steps in there, right. shields him. 
Um, but but I think what the Jets are doing right now is they ask a lot from him. You can see it affected his confidence at the beginning of the year. So what they're doing now is they're building it back up, and they're making sure they manage his ice time well to the degree that what he's doing is when he goes out there in those 13 minutes is experiencing a lot of success. And once he gets that success below him and starts to define himself as the player who is doing the very things that he's doing right now and doing them consistently, and he is seven straight games with a point for Cole Perfetti, very quietly behind the scenes yeah. here, um, then you're going to start seeing them let him go a little bit, let the horse stray a little bit further and further from the barn in this situation. Cole Perfetti, we're seeing this right now, is going to be a star Winnipeg Jet for years to come. They're making sure that they bring him along properly and they can do it because the third line, Adam Lowry's line is absolutely dominant right now. Um, and Mark Scheifele and Kyle Connor, we're seeing what they're doing. So they don't need him to be dominant right now, which gives them the luxury of managing him properly and trying to make sure that he's not just a great player now, but he's going to be a star for this team for years going forward. Do you have a, uh, uh, a thought or any anecdotes or anything that you have observed about Lowry and the captaincy? Uh, I, I mean, none of us are surprised at what he's doing right now. Adam has always been a Class A individual. It's, it's a bit of a departure, no doubt, um, from, from Blake Wheeler and the attitudes of the two players. I mean, a colleague of mine, Scott Billick, we were in the dressing room the other day. Um, he writes for the Winnipeg Sun, and he requested Adam Lowry, and something changed in the room, um, and we were interviewing a, another player. I think it was Connor Hellebuck, and I'm standing beside Scott, and just coming up behind him and kind of tapping him on the shoulder quietly is Adam Lowry, the captain of the Winnipeg Jets, saying, are you sure you don't need me, Scott? I'm here if you need me. And Scott's like, no, no, it's okay. We, we can move on. I mean, that is not the style of captain Blake Wheeler was. Blake Wheeler was combative at all points. Um, uh, and and I, I think what you're finding is the humble kind of attitude of, of Adam Lowry is really rubbing off the, on the Jets, and you're kind of seeing that in the work ethic of this team. Um, we're told that what gets real big cheers for the Winnipeg Jets players when they come back to their own bench in the middle of the game is they get cheered and said, nice back check, great job, great job backtracking that puck. Um, And that's an Adam Lowry thing. I do know that that line, the way that they say it is they go out and they play Rick Bonus's system to a T. It's their job to do that and hopefully set the precedent and all the other lines will follow. They've been doing that. And it's the one reason, Jeff, because this is the really interesting thing about last year. Rick Bonus lost his team. This team was playing like this at the beginning of last year. He lost the team. He said he was disgusted with them when they got knocked out of the players. I don't think the players got it. This is why he was saying that, because he knows they're capable of playing like they're playing right now, and they were choosing not to. So the amazing thing about all this is that Rick Bonus lost them, called them out, had a, you know, they were butting heads. And he's immediately won them back to his side to start the season playing the game the right way. Adam Lowry, I think, anecdotally, is the guy who's driving that and has got the Winnipeg Jets players, the Mark Shifley's, the Kyle Connors, everybody back on the page that Rick Bonus wanted them on. He's the guy who sets the standards. He's truly leading as the captain of these Winnipeg Jets. 
second generation players, right? Whether it's Brady Kachuk in Ottawa as the captain, Adam Lowry in uh, in Winnipeg as the captain, second generation guys, um, second yeah, generation and coaches' guys. sons. Uh, too. Before coaches I let you sons. go, right? And coach coaches' sons for sure. Um, I got about a, two minutes left with you here, and I don't think it's enough time, but we're going to try anyway. Um, the big story around the Winnipeg Jets is Kyle Connor. Now it really shouldn't be because we're used to seeing Kyle Connor, Kyle Connor score goals and score goals in bunches. Uh, but here we are Wednesday, November 15th, uh, 12:48 Eastern and Kyle Connor finds himself tied with Austin Matthews for the goal scoring lead in the NHL. I think we've always looked at Kyle Connor and said 40. Absolutely. 50. Eh. Maybe if we squint hard enough, we can see it. <laughs> but do you see 50 for Kyle Connor this year? Oh, yeah. Kyle Connor is a 50 goal scorer in waiting. He has been for a long time. Uh, he's just needed the right situation uh, to go along with him. Last year, he, you know, there's, he, he, he just was entirely snaked at missing empty nets, hitting posts. Um, it's a bounce back this year. But the real important part about this, Jeff, is Mark Shifley. Mark Shifley, uh, when Blake Wheeler left, he said about Blake Wheeler, he's the best passer that I've ever played with. Mark Shifley right mm. now is seeing the ice and doling out the puck specifically to Kyle Connor with the vision and the aptitude that we saw from Blake Wheeler at his peak. You think of that one-timer goal last night where, Blake, uh, where excuse me, Mark Shifley is on the wall fighting off a player and has the wherewithal to find Kyle Connor, who no one else on the ice sees, and deliver a perfect backhand sauce pass right into his wheelhouse for the one-timer. One of the reasons, it, and I believe it's going to happen, one of the reasons I think Kyle Connor is going to be a 50-goal scorer is because right now Mark Shifley is passing like one of the best passers and setup men in the game. This is a really dynamic duo here, and to me are emerging as one of the dynamic duos in the NHL that people should be talking about right now because they're that good. They are elite. Yeah. Is, that, is that an ad for Adam Oates? I, I mean, it may be. I'll tell you this. The one thing that I <laughs> talked with Josh Morrissey before the season, who goes to Adam Oates. Adam yep. Oates, they, yep. they, they are the advertisement for him. They, he, he talked about uh, yep. Shen uh, and, and how he extended his career and gave him just a couple little tips that were going to keep him in the league. Like the players see, they go to Adam Oates. He says, we're going to work specifically on this. You're going to see results and they see it. So the, I don't need to be, be advertised for Adam Oates. The players who go to him will do that for him. He's, Oh no! I mean, I, I say that tongue in cheek, but like I've I've talked no doubt, to players yeah. that have used them and talked to people that have like that 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 work at a mode system and and he's got like he's set up like these you know different areas where he has like his system being trained um, by uh, by different people like and I I love his you know get all the toys off the ice and like he's got some elite level people that he's trained to teach you know what he believes and how he believes hockey should be played and and you know Oates like it's down to the it's granular like the tiniest little things Adam Oates just blows up with players and they all come out of it as better hockey players and you're like Shifley is Shifley's a great example Morrissey's a great example Jack Eichel uh, is another great one too like the, the list is really really long uh, on that we'll wrap um, Sean as always uh, a pleasure thanks for shedding light and sharing your expertise on the Winnipeg Jets we'll check back soon pal anytime thanks for having me bud Winnipeg Jets back in action on Friday as they face off against the Buffalo Sabres, the Tage Thompson-less Buffalo Sabres. Time now for Line Change presented by Sports Interaction, your homegrown sportsbook bet local. Matt Marchese, 
Uh, last night, there were a lot of games. Nine tonight, there's only four. What are you eyeballing this evening? Uh, Ducks at Avalanche. Talk about the Ducks being a fun team to watch. Well, the Avalanche are also a fun team to watch. Uh, puck line is minus one and a half Colorado. The Ducks are one and nine in the last 10 meetings. The favorite is 41 and 18 in the last 59 meetings. The over is 5-0-1 in the last six meetings in Colorado. And as my pal and your pal, Jonathan Davis, points out to me tonight, uh, Anaheim's on the second half of a back-to-back, third game in four nights, and they have to adjust to Denver air. I'm not telling you what to do, but bet accordingly. (laughs) That's an excellent point. Um, Man, Anaheim has been a lot of fun. We talked about them at the beginning of the season with all the third-period comebacks, but this is a tall order. Now, this is a a Colorado Avalanche team that's coming off a big win against the uh, Seattle Kraken 5-1, but also this is a Colorado Avalanche team that probably still feels burned from what we saw on Saturday with the A2 loss at the hands of the St. Louis Blues. St. Louis is another team we should probably park a little bit of time talking about at a certain point as well, because don't look now, but the St. Louis Blues are playing real well. And there's one move specifically that Craig Berube has made that's allowed this to happen. We'll talk about that in hour two. How's that for a radio hook and a radio tease? Nice work. Matt Marchese. Uh, This one can be fun. Like, uh, whenever... Like, when everything comes together for the Colorado Avalanche, it is a thing of beauty. Like, you know, sometimes when teams are just like everybody's on the same page and everybody's clicking, you're like, oh, if we can get 82 games of this, what a beautiful team this would be to watch. At times, that's the Pittsburgh Penguins. At times, that's been the New York Rangers. And certainly, that's been the Colorado Avalanche. I don't want to say this is an obvious win tonight for the Avalanche, but it doesn't look good for the Anaheim Ducks for all those reasons you just mentioned. Yeah, it's like not it, it's game. not an easy one. Um, and but listen, it will be fun. They were na- they were named after a movie, like a fairy tale hockey movie. <laughs> so, if you want to add a fairy tale hockey chapter, go be Colorado tonight. We'll talk about it tomorrow. Uh, that was Line Change, presented by Sports Interaction, your homegrown sportsbook, Bet Local. Greg Wyshynski, MBSW Time, is next across the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Back in a moment. opinionated Maple Leaf show out there. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back to the program. You know, one of the interesting things about the uh, the Dallas Stars at this point in their development, I mean, and this is a team that's like right at the top of their winning cycle and will continue to be in that space for the foreseeable future, not just this season, but subsequent seasons as well. They are very well set up. Thank you very much. You look at that game last night against the Arizona Coyotes, and despite the fact that they were down towards the end of the game before Tyler Sagan tied it up, no panic whatsoever from the Dallas Stars. Uh, Rich Peverly knows that. Um, Former NHL player, now the Dallas Stars Director of Player Personnel, and I always throw in there, future general manager in the NHL. Rich Peverly, how are you today? I'm great, thank you. How are you? Uh, I'm doing well. Thanks so much as, as always for hopping on here. The uh, b- Before we get to the Dallas Stars, do you, uh, do you have a thought on this three-on-three issue and the, the debate raging at the, the general manager's meetings, you know, table more discussion for the subsequent meeting in March. 
Uh, I'm not so sure that there's anything really wrong, to be honest, with the with the three on three. I think we should always be massaging things. But uh, is there anything? Because I know it's turned into like endless neutral zone regroups, etc. Is there is there something that needs to be tweaked or massaged with the three on three, or do you think it's fine as it is? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I do think that you know over the course of time that that the play will get a little bit stale and the reason for that will be coaching and players evolve. And I think that's exactly what has kind of happened. You know, you had the four on four and, and then it goes to the three on three and they're just finding ways to, to be successful. And, you know, if holding possession of the puck does that and going back in the neutral zone, if you got to hold on to it, the, obviously the other team won't score. So it does feel a little stale at times, um, but I'm not sure anything needs to be changed, but it's uh you know, every little wrinkle once in a while does throw excitement, so I'm open to anything. Yeah. Take us back to the playing days. Do, uh, did players, like, did they actually like it, or was it sort of an annoyance, like it's Tuesday and, you know, we're in whatever market and we just want to get to the, the hotel or get to the plane and, and get out and here's an extra five minutes, or was it something that, hey, this is kind of cool, the coaches don't have their hooks into this thing yet, let's just do, let's just do sprints up and down the ice for five minutes? Yeah, uh, yeah. Obviously, when I played, I think it was, um, you know, it was a little bit new. I, we'd gone from the four on four to the three on three, yeah. and I think the three on three for myself, like I loved playing it. It was exciting. Um, you know, there wasn't as much going back once you were in the inside the blue line. You were kind of trying to make plays and and holding on to pucks, and I, I, I really enjoyed it. I wanted to get out on the ice in overtime, and I think mostly all the guys did. And you know, now with it going, yeah. I put myself in player's shoes now and if Buck's constantly going back that would kind of be an annoyance defending for sure um, but you know I think like I said coaches are going to adjust they will uh, and by that I mean they'll wreck the game and they'll suck all the entertainments uh, out of it but um, uh, another topic for another day um, the Dallas Stars like this is a fascinating organization and you know I was mentioning before I came on like this is an organization that's set up for a long time and it's one thing to draft and it's another thing to develop and when you have those two hand to glove uh it can be a really beautiful thing for an organization like i, I look at the dallas stars and has the drafting been good yes uh, but also the development as well and it seems as if there is there's a very deliberate path like we know like like, like Stan Coven and Bork, for example, like nothing's given to these guys. Like you're spending some time in the American Hockey League. Um, yeah, do you have a couple of a couple of thoughts, or, or you can share some experiences. Um, what the philosophy is of the Dallas Stars, because it's not, it doesn't look too unlike what the Detroit Red Wings used to do when they were in their powerhouse years, which is, yeah, we drafted you. Now we're going to start blocking. And you're gonna you're gonna have to take a spot away from someone. Nothing's gonna be given to you. Well, I think you know. I think you were going straight to the point where I was gonna I was gonna mention that's and that's Jim Mill. I think you know he obviously was running Detroit and and Grand Rapids at the time, and and I had played against them being in the same division. And you're talking about Yuri Hoodler and Philpola um, uh, and Eric. Oh, Terry Philpola. Yeah. That came through. Yeah. And all these players that kind of came through Grand Rapids, and and nothing was given. And I feel like, you know, you know, my philosophy has definitely been uh, the same as Jim's, and it's kind of probably been forced forged by that by what Jim has done and Scott White. And you know, I think you got to earn your way, and I think anything given for sure will 
will definitely breed entitlement into a player, and I think learning to work for something is very important. Um, you know, I think the right the player's mindset going into the year too is is very important, and I think with with those two players you mentioned, with Logan Stankoven and, and Maverick Bork, you could probably throw Liam Bischel in there as well. We have players that gone in, yeah. and, you know, been vital important pieces to our American League's team success so far this year. You know, you could argue they've been our best players. So, um, you know, going down, having the right mindset, and knowing that you know you're going to have to earn it, and you know, but when you do come up, you're gonna you're gonna go up and you're gonna play in a really good team, and you're gonna get a good opportunity. So, you know, I think, you know, could those players probably play in the NHL? Yes, they could probably play in the NHL now, but uh, it doesn't hurt to go down and dominate. I've always felt that way at any uh, development uh, age in hockey. That's for sure. You know, I've never seen uh, a player get hurt by spending time in the American Hockey League. I've seen the opposite. I think we all have of players that that were rushed to the NHL and it hurt their development and and ultimately hurt their career. I have yet to meet the player who said, "Yeah, you know what? Uh, the problem with my career was I was sent down to the American Hockey League." Like it's 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 such a great sort of finishing academy before you get to the NHL. And like there, it's the rare case where a player can go right from their junior team or a college team right into the NHL. I know that it happens. And we all do. And these are very unique players. I personally think the lion's share of players should spend at least a little bit of time in the American Hockey League. And there's one position that I'm specific about it. And the exceptions of them going right to the NHL are rare. Whether it's you know Ken Dryden might be the most obvious one going from Cornell to the Montreal Canadiens and winning cups and Conn Smythe trophies, but goaltending specifically, I mean, a it's really hard to be a goalie in the NHL. It's hard to be a young goalie in the NHL, and it's hard to be a goalie in the NHL when you haven't spent any time at the American Hockey League level. I can understand maybe a defenseman going right to the NHL. I can understand a forward, but would you agree with me, Rich, that the one place where you have to, you have to go to the American League is in net? Yeah, no no doubt. And and I'm I'm been kind of been through that with a bunch of goaltenders. Uh, even when I played, I I played in Milwaukee with uh with Pecorine for 3 years. And you know, he was Yep came up his first year and he played for them in his first year, played for them in his second year of his contract. And even on his third year, he went down and, you know, probably didn't want to go down. And, um, but you know, they knew it was best for his development. And, uh, you know, I think Nashville's done a good job, you know, with bringing players up through their farm system. And I've been through that. So, you know, I saw that firsthand and then, you know, same thing with Jake. I think Jim did a very good job of explaining to him at the time that, you know, you need to go down and you need to continue to, to play games because being up in the NHL and even splitting time is not, you know, what you want to do. You'll When you're ready, you will go up and, and, and you will push other players out. And that's just kind of how the development system works. And I, I'm a big believer in, like you said, it, goaltending is probably the most important t- uh, position to go down and play in the American League. I'd argue defenseman next yeah. um, because you can shelter mm-hmm. a forward a little bit more. But... Um, you know, you're talking about pretty unique players that can go straight to the NHL regardless of the position. Um, I'm always curious about the conversations. Like, I think about Stankoven and I think about Bork a lot when I think about players on the horizon. Uh, Liam Bischel certainly a uh, different position playing, playing the back end. But as it relates to the forwards, I, I try to figure, okay, so like what goes through their mind and what are the conversations like with Rich Peverly when they may think in their mind, 
okay, next season I'm going to make the team, and then Matt DeShane comes in. Like, how do you talk to players about, you know what, it could have been your time, but this is the direction that Dallas went. Just be patient, hold on, your time will come. What are those conversations like? Well, I think a little bit of part of it is to understand where the team is at um, in the league. And, you know, obviously we go to a conference finals last year and, and, you know, you leave, you lose to the eventual Stanley cup winners and you feel like, you know, you're trying to add to your group to make your, your team better. Now that's part of what training camp is for. I think if you go through a month long, a training camp and a player looks like they're ready, then, you know, I think you got to find a way to make it work. But having said that you can have them go down and, there's injuries and, and your play will also dictate how long you stay down. So, uh, you know, the conversations I think is just preparing the players that, that this could happen. I think anytime you have a shock to the player, they, and they don't know what's going to happen. They're going to through the course uh, before they're sent down, they're going to be thinking to themselves every single time they're in the hotel room during training camp, what am I doing? What's going on with me? Am I not playing well enough? And, you know, I think if you have those conversations, they go into the training camp and they're like, okay, well, it's not the worst case that I can go down and, and dominate and play really well. And it's, you know, ultimately the best thing for them. And I think what we've done in the past too is, you know, we've gotten out statistics. Uh, I know I've done that with some of our development group and, and be like, you know, you're talking a, a high, high percentage of players that are going to go straight to the NHL. And, you know, I can give you all the ones that have succeeded, but I can give you a lot more that haven't succeeded. And you don't want to be on that side of yeah. it. So, you know, I think if you go in and, and just communicate with the players, it's, you know, going to make uh, their life and, and probably the best to, for the organization. You know, Thomas Harley is a player I watched uh, a lot playing, um, you know, at, at Mississauga with the Steelheads, James Richmond's team. Um, you know, his development has been, I mean, it's, it's kind of been in a little ways, the, the, and you mentioned, you know, defensemen right after goaltenders, you need to spend time in the minors. Do you have a thought or two on where Thomas Harley is at and how he got there? Well, yeah, Thomas is a, is a, had a unique pathway just because of COVID. Uh, you know, he was supposed to play his 19-year-old year in Mississauga, and I, and I bet you if you talk to the coaching staff uh, during that time, they had a pretty good team. So, um, you know, I think with, with Thomas, I think it was him going down to the minors and, and playing one year as a 19-year-old, going again as a 20-year-old and playing in the minors. But then I think, you know, that time when he felt he probably was ready to play, you know, I think Pete DeBoer coming in last year and explaining to him, um, you know, this is what you need to work on. And if you're going to play in the NHL now, and we discussed this with our players, is you got to be a two-way player. You can't be just one-dimensional. And, you know, I think Thomas had a really good uh, uh, player to look up to because Pete coached Nick Hag in, uh, um, in Vegas, and Thomas had played with Nick Hag. So it was a great uh, it was a great example of a player that needed to go and, and go down and work on you know a certain part of his game. And, you know, we kind of did the same thing with Ty Delandria as well. And, you know, sometimes players need to go down, they need to find their confidence and they need to play a lot. And, you know, their time will eventually come and, and both players kind of went through the similar situation. You know, I, uh, I have all day for Ty Delandria. Um, he's, uh, I, mean, I watched him play with Flint uh, a ton. And, you know, it's always curious. I'm always curious to see what happens when a player transitions from their junior team to their, to their NHL team. Uh, and sometimes they have to take on a little bit of a different role or play a different way uh, to stay in the NHL. 
what kind of player do you think Ty Delandria is, and what kind of player do you think Ty Delandria can be? Well, I think Ty Delandria, you know, obviously a player that we value a lot. He's got high character, and he's kind of a two-way player that is trusted. And you know, I think one area that we've kind of worked on with him lately has been his face-offs, and uh, he's continuing to get better at that. But I think I try to stress to a lot of people that face-offs is not something you just kind of get good at overnight or even over a six-month period. It's a time that that takes an extraordinary amount of time because you're learning what other players are doing, you're learning tendencies, and you're you're getting stronger over those time over that time. So, you know, that's a big thing that he's been working on. But I think he's obviously shown last year he's a two-way player. He scored, I think, he had almost 30 points, and you know, I do think he's got another level in his game. Um, you know, he's kind of going through it right now, trying to find his game at the start of the year here. But, you know, I think I, I have high expectations for him. I think he's a guy that's going to be, you know, probably on your third line and he's going to be able to contribute to secondary offense. He's a, that's kind of what he is. And he's been a great, uh, a great player for our organization. High character, like I mentioned, and, you know, player that I've enjoyed yeah. tremendously, uh, tremendously working with. Well, listen, uh, on that, I'll let you go. Thanks uh, always for stopping on with me. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, continued success with the Stars. Uh, a lot of rising stars, pardon the pun, on that team, and uh, and that includes you. Rich, thanks as always for stopping by with me today. Yeah, thanks you very much, Jeff. Appreciate it. Thank you. There is Rich Peverly, is the Director of Player Personnel for the, uh, for the Dallas Stars. And Matt Marchese, if you got a couple of seconds, a future general manager. Uh, by the way, Dallas next in action Saturday against the Colorado Avalanche. The Avalanche playing again, playing tonight, uh, facing off against the Anaheim Ducks. One of only four games on the board. But then what we'll see tomorrow, Maddie, is afternoon hockey. Two o'clock Eastern, if you're in the Eastern time zone. Uh, Three o'clock in BC is the Red Wings facing off against the Ottawa Senators in Stockholm. Do you have a thought on uh, the the the, uh, the face of Swedish hockey right now? This is coming off the Bunkus conversation from this morning. The uh, the face of Swedish hockey now, and your favorite Swedish hockey player of all time? Yeah, well, fa- favorite of all time is Matt Sundin. I just I've always been of the opinion that Matt Sundin never got his due in Toronto, even though he was. You know, is thought about as one of the greatest players in Leafs history. I still never thought he got the due uh, because he wasn't Tim Smith from Kingston, as I always like to say. Um, so that's part of it. Hang on, hang on. Pause. Yeah. Pause on Matts. Do you think he should have been a winger? You know, it's funny. I think he would have been better suited as a center in today's game than before. I don't necessarily disagree with you. Here, 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 and here's why. If you look at all the highlight Matt Sundin plays from his career, what is it? It's power winger moves. Yep. Big slap it's shots. Off the boards, sticking out, sticking out the leg yep. and ripping it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I was always watching the, 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 the thing was always, oh, they can't get Matt Sundin a winger. They can't get Matt Sundin a winger. Maybe Matt should be a winger. I get him a center. Um, after I said that Matt Sundin was the greatest Leaf of all time, I got a note from our friend Pat Flash who said that Rick Vive is the greatest Leaf of all time. So no, thanks for listening. Twenty-two. Thanks Flash for listening, you, Pat. You should see. You should, you should see her desk. It's like all twenty-two Rick Vive, like all all over the desk. She's the biggest Rick Vive fan. Spud, you know how he got the nickname Spud? I think I remember this. I think it was a John Brophy. John thing. Brophy gave yeah. it to him. Yeah, because everyone from PEI, their uh, or sorry, uh, Squid, Squid was his nickname, and everyone from PEI, their nickname is always Spud because of potatoes and and PEI, 
And John Brophy mistakenly one day called him Squid, thinking it was Spud, and that just stuck. <laughs> so that became Rick Five's nickname, Squid. Where everyone else in PEI, their nickname is Spud. I love it. I love it. All right. Enough of us. Um, that's it for us today. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for uh, to Matt Marchese, our, I don't know what we're calling you, Matt. Host, producer, supervising producer, jack of all trade. Thanks to Matt Marchese. Thanks to producer David Sis, uh, Lance Kennedy, Frank Baraska as well. Uh, thanks to you for watching slash listening. If you're watching the Bo Horvat return tonight, enjoy it. Four games on the board around the NHL. Enjoy those games. 22 hours from now, we talk about it all before we give way to a nice 2 o'clock in the afternoon game. Ah, love it.